0: Today's going to be a little bit different of a lesson. It will in React be a message, a very personal message for me. I want to just kind of relieve any fears you might have. Uh, First of all, no, I'm not sick again, no cancer. Secondly, I'm not resigning and leaving to go somewhere. And to the best of my knowledge, the elders aren't firing me. Uh, Third, I have not committed any kind of uh, violation or sin that causes me to have to step down uh, in a, in, a, in that kind of an overt way. But sin is the reason that I'm bringing this message to you today. Start off with two readings, one from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 18. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you and then from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 for he that is Jesus Christ in his death burial and resurrection is our peace in his flesh he made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us I am convinced that I have participated in breaking the fellowship that Christ died for and calls us to live in. If not by my direct actions, then by my inaction. If not by my thinking, then in my voluntary blindness. For many years now, I've been on a journey of discovery and reflection. And that journey has been punctuated with various events in my life Some personal, some public. But it has become more urgent and pressing on my heart, soul, mind. And some of you have even noted that it has affected me physically. In the 12 years that I've been here, I have been blessed with your kind and gracious hearing. I ask that you hear me today with that same grace and kindness. I'm going to address some topics and use some phrases that may tempt you To simply tune out and immediately take exception. But I ask for you to keep listening and to try and understand my meaning for those words and phrases and what what they are portrayed in the media. But before, excuse me, before you feel accused, please note that in today's message, I am speaking of my own blindness, my own lack of understanding my own inaction, and failures. I hope you know and trust that above all else, I love each of you and I love all of you and want for us to all grow more and more into, as Colossians says, the fullness of Christ and to become more and more, as Jesus said, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. I also want to say that you don't have to agree with what I'm about to say. I am presenting this as my story, and as you will see, my confession and my lament. This journey has been centered on the concepts of racial division and my own coming to terms with the realities of racism in my life and in the world around me. The Holy Spirit has moved in mine, and I am so thankful, Sharon's life. To first realize these realities in our culture and in our our own set of friends and acquaintances. And then to mourn how contrary these ideas are to being people who know God, the creator of us all. People who are redeemed by Jesus Christ, the only name with, with which we are saved and the name by which all can be saved. And as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who is working to transform all who welcome him into the new creation that broke into the world at his resurrection. I have to start by saying that I'm very thankful for the parents who created a household that promoted no level of overt prejudice or racism There was no conversation that included derogatory labels for people who did not look like us or sound like us or live like us. And if I picked up anything like that at school or with neighborhood or unfortunately even church friends, it was quickly and firmly corrected at home. We don't talk that way. I believe the only time that my mouth had soap in it was directly because of that. My mother recounts being part of a school integration in the mid-1950s in Beeville, Texas, and recognizing that the girls' basketball team could no longer stop at restaurants after road games because there were two black players on the team. My father grew up vegetable farming in East Texas, where most of what were called the hands were black men and women, and while his culture was immersed in the system of one race being the bosses and another being the workers, I have never heard him degrade another person for the color of their skin or, again, their role in life. I find that environment to be a particular blessing as I discover more and more about the profound and overt racist culture that existed in the town in which. I was raised. I will do my best not to name the town because it's not about what's wrong with my hometown because I believe it to be a typical story of many towns. I went to school at a place called Thornton Elementary. It was my neighborhood school. And while there were some brown faces, there were no black faces in that school. This didn't concern me. And when I got to middle school and there were some black faces along with more brown faces, it was in no way a concern to me. It didn't bother me. But what I did notice was the increasing overcrowded conditions in my school, 30, 35, 40, as many as 42 and more students crowded into classrooms that were smaller than what today is limited 20. This was a curiosity to me, but not a situation I concerned myself with. We got air conditioning in school by the time I got to third grade, and I was one happy little boy. But later in life, I've discovered that my overclouded classroom was the direct result of what I call systemic racism in my own hometown. In 1896, a precedent was established in Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the Supreme Court of the United States of America only 30 years after the conclusion of the horrific destruction and bloodletting of the Civil War, authorized segregation, legalized segregation by finding Louisiana's separate but equal law constitutional. This ruling legitimized the notions of white superiority and black and in reality non-white inferiority and provided legal justification for Jim Crow laws that were enacted in many states. But beginning in 1936 and in continuing through the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Supreme Court began to reverse segregation, especially in schools. In response, the school board in my hometown voted to sell all its school buses and claimed to the federal government that it could therefore not integrate or desegregate its schools. The federal government, in response, put an injunction on construction of any new schools or classrooms, classroom additions. It was only in 1966 that a partial integration of the high school, which didn't complete until 1968, began. And I began first grade there in 1970. Little did I know how much my own history was mingled with the ongoing story of systemic racism In Texas, and the United States. Even later, as I moved back to my hometown as an adult, I discovered that racism in that town was not limited to the school, but permeated other parts of my beloved community. Whether it was the legalized segregation of what is called redlining, not offering home loans to blacks or other non-whites to purchase homes in white neighborhoods, or just plain old violence and intimidation. Blacks were relegated to one side of town. This segregation was relatively simple in my hometown in that it was a railroad town and the busy tracks marked the main axis of that line. While neighborhood segregation was bad enough, it was compounded by the fact that the train hindered access to those neighborhoods to most police and fire services. It also inhibited both ambulances getting to victims on the east side and direct access to the emergency hospital care. It wasn't until the late 1990s that overpasses were built over those tracks to provide that ready access. Unfortunately, the culture at church wasn't much better. I have absolutely no memory of any non-white person being asked to leave or not attend our congregation, the one that I grew up in, but I also don't remember any coming. My father has told me the story many times from the early 70s of the Black Church of Christ in town, of course on the east side, asking for and receiving help from multiple white churches to build a new building. In that process, I have to proudly say, that my dad asked the business meeting why we can't just invite them to join us. But one of the elders said, who was a lifelong native of the town, they need to have their own place. Please do not hear a condemning voice towards my hometown. I have many friends, admittedly mostly white, but many black and brown, who are wonderful, loving, kind, and I would say righteous people whom I love. But the history is the history. And I am learning that I need to be more honest with myself about history and how it impacts the present. You see, the problem was that every time I learned something new about systemic racism in my hometown, it never caused me to really consider and pursue the reality of those systems everywhere affecting many people I love and care about. And in truth, to proclaim that I know the Father and to say that I follow the Son and filled with the Holy Spirit, I am called to care for all people, especially those who are marginalized in any way and really for any reason. So this isn't just a story. It is a confession that I am lamenting as well. I'm going to start my confession with the rea- reality that t- it took appalling violence to get my attention. George Floyd's death in Wisconsin and its subsequent national and international reaction are what finally pushed my heart and mind into action. I could no longer simply say, What did that man do wrong? as I had with Trayvon Martin in Florida and Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and more recently Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Yes, George Floyd could have been more compliant. Yes, he was extremely agitated. No, I am not anti-police. But emphatically, no. No, no. Once subdued, on the ground, and in handcuffs, he did not have to die. And I think if I would have known him personally, I would have said, murdered. I understand, and again am sickened by the way groups who want to leverage these incidents for violence and anarchy are taking advantage of them. But that does not change the reality. Systemic racism is a cancer in our culture that will only bring more destruction the longer it is ignored and the longer we, as God's people, the body of Christ, continue to ignore it or act like it's not a problem. You're right. You're exactly right. I don't know everything there is to know about these situations. You may be right that I'm just being manipulated by the visuals. But I've discovered that racism is much nearer and much more personal than I would have ever thought. I have taken direction from various spiritual leaders who are not promoting anarchy, but are yearning for a day when Sunday mornings in churches that confess, praise, and proclaim the name of Jesus is no longer the most segregated hour in America. These leaders pointed me to conversations, conversations with black friends, and these conversations have been convicting. I want to say now that I understand there are also inequities which displease God for other non-white groups in the world. But in my context, in America, there is only one group whose ancestors' immigration was brutally forced by the slave trade and the economics of slave labor. Therefore, I believe their situation is unique. And so much of my story and confession today will be focused on my relationships with black men and women. Every story I have heard directly or overheard from these black men and women, not only 150 years ago, not 50 years ago, but right now, having given witness to various disparities that range from simple lack of courtesy to insulting racial stereotyping, to life-threatening situations. And they are not limited to small towns or the South. I confess that I don't know the way many people see a large, even well-dressed black man whom I know personally to constantly carry a smile on his face. But when he walks towards them or through a parking lot, There are people who look his way and lock their doors and pull their purses close. I didn't know, and one might say I didn't care to know, that it is not unusual for a non-white person driving through a largely white neighborhood to be pulled over by police, not for traffic violation, but just to check to be sure that the vehicle they're driving is not stolen. I didn't know. And to a certain extent, I didn't care to know. That back fathers and grandfathers feel the need to carefully and thoroughly instruct their sons to an extent, and to an extent, their daughters with specific instructions on how to act and not react when they are pulled over by the police. And that these same parents have to live with the fear that too often a simple traffic stop so much more easily becomes a fatality for their non white children than for my own white children and eventually, grandchildren. I didn't know that it was not unusual for a non-white person to call about an apartment for rent or a job opening and then to arrive in person be seen generally as not white but particularly black and suddenly what was available just hours earlier in a phone call will suddenly be closed or unavailable. You may say, again, I don't know the specifics of those situations, but there's a study that was conducted by MIT and the University of Chicago of Business in 2003. These are two institutions that graduates have little trouble finding jobs. In this study, they sent 5,000 fictitious resumes out for 1,250 jobs, in other words, four resumes per job. These were openings for administrative and sales jobs. Of the four resumes, two were sent with inferior qualifications, but two were sent with highly two of them that were sent were highly qualified ones with nearly identical backgrounds and credentials. The difference in the two more qualified resumes was the names on the resumes. Half were the names, Brendan, Greg, Emily, and Ann. The other half were Tamika, Aisha, Rashid, and Tyrone. In this study, the white names received 50 more initial response, 50% more initial responses than did the black names. And this was a consistent t- statistic whether the job opening was, was something like a cons- cashier or an administrative assistant. Again, I confess that I didn't know these inequalities, and maybe worse, I didn't care enough to know. I confess that I have not been honest with myself about history. I can remember thinking and probably even saying out loud that for many blacks following the Civil War, life was harder than when they were being, quote, taken care of by their masters. The truth is that of the hundreds of firsthand accounts of slaves that began to be collected and compiled as part of FDR's Works Progress Administration, there are no happy slave stories. There will, they will recount happy moments, but none of them say, I wish I was black back on the plantation. I didn't know enough. Maybe I didn't care enough to know about the black codes before and after the Civil War and how limited the rights of even freed blacks to vote or for equal treatment under the law were. In the North, most of these disappeared after the passage of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which ended slavery and the end of the Civil War. But in the South, white lawmakers gave them even more structure. They were particular, these were particularly empowered by what are called vagrancy laws generally which allowed for the arrest of freed black men for minor infractions and committing them to involuntary or forced labor. As the farms mechanized during the industrial revolution and less free labor was needed then the Jim Crow laws were enacted that legalized segregation and built upon the theme of racial inequality. I've seen the movies, but I didn't think I really let, I don't think I really let the horrific reality of the Ku Klux Klan and a minimum, bare minimum, of 3,500 blacks lynched in America between 1882 and 1968. I also never acknowledged the role of law enforcement in aiding and abetting the Klan and those lynchings well into my own lifetime. I have heard of but never cared enough to investigate the details about one prototypical event that appropriately summarized the, abused in, the abuse endured by the ancestors of my black friends, the carnage of which is commonly called the Tulsa Race Riots of 1921, which destroyed and lynched an entire community in broad daylight not just individuals under the cover of darkness. Maybe most sickening is the reality that civic authorities did not just ignore the violation of black lives, but directly participated by deputizing and arming many white men. Before it was done, every black person in Tulsa was arrested with a minimum of 100 black people being killed. And the entire neighborhood of Greenwood, firebombed by air. I said I was convicted in heart and mind to act earlier. I must convince, confess that my body did not go along. I had the opportunity to be part of a peaceful march against inequality in Freeport back in April. I did not have the courage to go. I said. It was because it didn't know what the logistics were and I didn't want to be perceived as protesting against the police. But mostly, I was just afraid. You are right. I did not elect a single board member that made that, took that idea of selling the buses in my hometown. I did not elect any of the city leaders who drew the lines that divided it. I have never expected a black person not to sit next to me on public transportation or in a theater or at church. I did not fight for the Confederacy, and I never owned a slave. I did not ratify the Declaration of Independence, which ironically allowed slavery to continue to exist in a nation as it established a new liberty and freedom and proclaimed that, quote, "...all men are created equal." I might even take some credit for the fact that I do not and for the most part don't have any memory of using the N-word in my vocabulary, of never being concerned about who I sat next to in school, about diligently taking care of black players on the football team when I was a trainer in high school, of standing up to someone close to me who wanted to deride the idea of black. playing quarterback in the NFL I took my youth group to the local black churches youth rally I supported my daughter when she wanted to go to the high school band banquet with a black young man he was a fine fine young man taking my family on vacation when we were on vacation to more than one black congregation I might take credit for never teaching or preaching any lesson that intentionally contained any approval of us against them thinking or of befriending the best of my ability every non-white man and woman in every congregation that I've ever been a part of. But I stand here today believing that those actions cannot outweigh my my lack of sensitivity and inaction and most, maybe most of all, my silence. I want to say that black lives matter to me and they matter to God. I must be clear, very clear, that I know that there is an organization that has stolen that phrase and are using it as a label. And that that organization is anti-God, anti-family, and anti-Christian morality. I believe that it is clear that they are supporting and maybe even inciting violent riots, destruction of public property, looting, and general civic anarchy. But I will not let them steal a phrase that I want my black brothers and sisters in Christ and my black friends to hear me say. Yes, black lives do matter. So do brown lives and red and yellow lives And it is because of the reality of systemic racism in our culture that I need to say it. I am convinced that it will not be solved without a unified effort from individual Christians and churches standing where I believe God would have a stand in attitude and in word and in action. I was blessed to have multiple conversations in preparing for this sermon conversations with my parents and conversations that lived in my with people who lived in my hometown when some of the events that I'm describing took place and they would consistently talk about relatives older relatives who were the kindest sweetest people they ever knew and yet for them their black friends were just the help And what I had to confess to you is that what I realize is is that part of the reason that those kind, dear people would allow that kind of division to exist between those who are white and those who are not is because the pulpits oftentimes were the source of the teaching on separate but equal and the inequality between different peoples of different color. And I do not want to ever be seen as preaching in those veins. For you, this church, for your children, for my grandchildren, I believe that the fellowship that Christ has called his church to be and do stands in stark contrast to any kind of racial, ethnic, social, or economic division. These are things that I have done and I am doing. And I think you would be blessed to do the same. I have had intentional conversations with members of our church and friends of mine who are black. And in that conversation I started, you don't have to because you may not feel the need to, but I started all those conversations, I am here to confess to you That I didn't know things that I should have known. And that I have not acted the way I should have acted. And I would like to hear your story of things that I'm only beginning to become aware of. Those conversations have been overwhelmingly blessed. With people who have been generous and gracious. And to this point, unaccusative. I invite you to seek out those conversations. I invite you to do some research. When you get home in your email, uh, most of you have access to right now Media. All of you have access. Most of you have taken advantage of that access. You're going to get a, a link, you're going to get a lesson, a, a group, a training, I think that's what it's called, that will lead you to a video by a man named Phil Vischer. You would know him as the guy who created the Veggie Tales. I encourage you to listen to all 20-plus minutes of it. There's a second follow-on as well. I also encourage you to contact Van Manning, who has done an incredible job of assembling resources, links to resources that he would be glad to email to you for a, a longer list. And what I failed to mention was a book that we've been reading as an eldership with our black male members called Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. You'd be blessed to read that. I have stepped into a time of confession and lament, only part of which is this sermon. But I'm also doing my best to recognize the forgiveness that God. Wants to give me and has been generously given by every black friend that I've conversed with. But I want to use that forgiveness to make a difference in relationships wherever I have an opportunity. I want to thank Algie and Selena Armstead. Algie is an engineer at NASA, but also the preacher at the West Side Church in Angleton. I want to thank Bill and Joyce Lewis. I want to thank Van, and Man- Van Manning and Raymond Waddy for their unyielding support and their generosity and graciousness in helping me walk down this road. I invite you to come today. I invite you to come today and make Jesus' prayer for his church a reality in our time. Jeff has already mentioned it. I'll read these words, and we'll stand and sing following them. From John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe That you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Thank you for your kind and generous hearing. Yeah. My eyes, eyes are dry.